Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number four, Until We Have Faces. Um, before we start, real quick announcement, just three quick things that are coming up here later this month. This weekend is Middlemoot out in Waterloo, Iowa. So I welcome folks to, uh, you can still join us. You can still join us in Waterloo, Iowa, too. Uh, but you can also still join us online remotely, as all of our moots, of course, are fully hybrid. We also have a moot next weekend back up here in New Hampshire. Um, New England moot under the beautiful fall foliage here in New Hampshire. Uh, so I hope you can join us for that. That's going to be a, a, a fun, spooky theme there. And it's going to be held in Studio Labs, uh, in the very studio in which we filmed Rings and Realms. So uh, you can uh, you can come to that or you can, again, join us remotely there as well. Uh, and then finally, on the 28th of October, we have the Fall Space Showcase coming up, where you can get a sneak peek of modules that are coming up and just kind of a, a taste of how our space program works and how our, our space uh, modules work. Uh, as you'll It'll be a full day of uh, short but uh, sort of meaty samples of, uh, of the kind of teaching and learning that happens in our space program, which is so much fun. Um, Okay, so that's the stuff that's happening here in October, um, and uh, we will we will move forward. Let's see, um, I don't think I have news on SoCal Moot, but we're getting closer, Jocelyn. I've been hearing about it, and I think there's some we're we're deciding on a date. Uh, I think is the is the issue there. Um, anyway, let us jump back into the text. We have a a lot. <laughs> There's, there's a lot I want to talk about. Um, I was uh, going through and realizing <laughs> there were... I'm like, okay, there really aren't very many parts of uh, of chapter 7, that the chapter of her conversation with um, uh, with Psyche, uh, Orwell and Psyche's last conversation there in, her, in, in Psyche's prison. Um, aren't very many parts of that conversation that I don't want to discuss together, so let's... Um, uh, let's let's see if we can get into that here. Meanwhile, we have just a, a little bit left of chapter five, the confrontation with the uh, with the priest when the priest is finally announcing, uh, coming around to announcing that Psyche, of course, is the one who's going to be sacrificed. Um, you'll remember that when the king, so when the priest says that the lots fell upon the king's family, right? Uh, the king immediately leaps to the conclusion that he's the one who's being targeted, uh, that the, the, the priest is using this as a mechanism of uh, revolt, essentially, um, that he's planning to, 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 to murder the king. Um, and so he calls out his guard and he, you know, tells them to slaughter the guards of the, uh, you know, the temple guards you know, that they've locked there inside the palace and everything. Um, and Bardia, of course, the, uh, the, the captain of the guard is put into an awkward position. This is foolishness, king, said the priest. All gloom is in arms. There is a party of armed men at every door of the palace by now. Your guards are outnumbered ten to one, and they won't fight. Would you fight against Ungit, Bardia? Will you slink away from my side, Bardia, said the king? After eating my bread, you were glad of my shield to cover you one day at Varen's wood. 
"'You saved my head that day, King,' said Bardia. "'I'll never say otherwise. "'May Ungit send me to do as much for you. "'There may be chance enough next spring. "'I'm for the King of Gloam and the gods of Gloam while I live. "'But if the King and the gods fall out, "'you great ones must settle it between you. "'I'll not fight against powers and spirits.' We were just looking at the end of last time on when the king says that he is neither priest nor Greekling, right? How the royal family, in some sense, sort of sits between these two things. Um, and I was talking in particular there about how that that specific speech by the king, um, I am ne neither priest nor Greekling, um, describes a position which is even more, um, you know, that, that's perfectly true, of course, of the king, but it's even more importantly true of Orowal, um, who is, uh, you know, as we know, because she keeps telling us, is going to be queen after her father, um, is going to be the ruler after her father. Um, she, of course, is the one who is very much sort of sitting in the middle. Um, we talked about even, in a sense, sitting in judgment between the priests and the Greeklings. Right between the philosophy of the fox and the traditional uh, teachings and religious understandings of Gloom. So that idea of kind of being in between um, in that, but again, in a very much a, a sort of a seat of judgment, um, we can see already places where Orwal has declared that the fox, though she loves him and respects him, is quite wrong. Right, And other places, of course, where she disagrees with the gods, right? Bardi, in Bardia here, we see a more kind of painful version of this division, right? Bardia is not in a seat of judgment, right? He's neither priest nor Greekling either, right? Um, instead, we see him in a position where he is... Um, he, he sees himself to be the servant of both, Right? Not of the Greeks, of course. It's the king and the priest that he's torn between here. Um, but this idea of um, division between and this the division of loyalties, right? Um, for Bardia here, he is as a as a you know on his sort of mortal side, right? He is the subject of the king, and he owes his life to the king. But he is also spiritually, right, bound to the gods of Gloam and is not going to oppose the priest either. And so he is put into a very painful predicament here where the king, his mortal sovereign, has ordered him to fight against the gods. I'm for the king of Gloam and the gods of Gloam while I live, he says. But if the king and the gods fall out, you great ones must settle it between you. I'll not fight against powers and spirits. Um, yes, Ambrosius, he does serve two masters. And yes, curious chance, this is our introduction to Bardia. Um, the first time we've heard Bardia speak, um, I think it's it's pretty much, yes, this is pretty much where Bardia enters the enters the story. And yes, Cal Elros, it's true that the king is also divine as well. He's of, of divine blood. Um... And yet, this division between sort of things spiritual and things physical, um, you know, things sort of material or political, um, is very present to Bardier here. Notice how even the king's appeal 
to Bardia is not based on some kind of divine authority. It's based on, you owe me your life, right? I saved your life. You were glad of my shield to cover you one day at Varen's Wood, right? Um, he is calling upon Bardia's personal loyalty to him as a soldier, right? As his, as his captain, as his king. Um, so, although it is true that, um, Cal Elros, as you say, the, um, the royal house is in a slightly ambivalent situation there. Um, that's very much not the terms that Bardia is kind of confronted with. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah, the Bardia, so there, just like two things that I would point out here is first this sort of tension, the, the tension between mortal concerns, that is concerns that are based on human life and human relationships uh, that is among each other, right? Human emotions, all that kind of thing. Um, again, those are the things that the king is appealing to. Uh, here. And the respect due to the gods um, from, you know, as certainly as appears to be perceived by the people of Gloam. Um, so that those two things are separate things and that their intention were shown sort of dramatically um, in Bardia's situation here. Um, the I said there were two things. What was the other thing I was going to say? I can't remember. So first was the fact of the of this division. Um, oh yeah, and the the second thing. I remember the second thing. The second thing is the sort of state of helplessness that Barty is in. Right? He doesn't have he. If there seems to be conflict, he's trapped. There's nothing he can do. All he can do is, like, remain inactive, right? He can't take any action on his own, on his... Like, there is no decision open to Bardia here. There's no good option open to Bardia. And so he only just tries to, uh, to do nothing. This kind of... The helplessness of Bardia's position is, I think, something that we will see on other occasions. Um, the king, I don't think... I put this on the slide. Um, the king points it out when the fox mentions the story of Iphigenia. Um, that is the daughter of Agamemnon, um, whom Agamemnon sacrificed. Um, so Agamemnon sacrifices, he kills his daughter Iphigenia um, in order to appease the gods uh, and to take to take away the contrary winds that were preventing the Greek army from sailing for Troy at the beginning of the Trojan War, but great curses fall upon the the the, the household of Agamemnon as a result of that shocking act of sacrificing his own daughter, um, and so you may remember the fox is emphasizing that right. This is like he's trying to marshal this as an argument to the king as to why he should definitely not sacrifice, you know, sacrifice his own daughter. And you remember the king says, that's just typical of the gods, right? To command you to do something and then to punish you for doing it. And in that moment, we can hear the king voicing a similar kind of helplessness, not the same helplessness, right? But it's a similar kind of helplessness that Bardia is in here. We see people put 
into what they feel to be that kind of helpless division, right? Um, at various at various points, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep moving. The king then pounces on the priest and sticks his dagger, uh, the tip of his dagger, in between the ribs uh, of the priest and threatens to, you know, drive the knife in if he won't change his mind. Drive it in, king, swift or slow, if it pleases you. It will make no difference. Be sure the great offering will be made, whether I am dead or living. I am here in the strength of Ungit. While I have breath, I am Ungit's voice, perhaps longer. A priest does not wholly die. I may visit your palace more often, both day and night, if you kill me. The others will not see me. I think you will. This was the worst yet. The fox had taught me to think, at any rate to speak, of the priest as a mere schemer and a politic man who put into the mouth of Ungit whatever might most increase his own power in lands or, har or most harm his enemies. I saw it was not so. He was sure of Ungit. Looking at him as he sat with a dagger pricking him and his blind eyes unwinking, fixed on the king and his face like an eagle's face, I was sure too. Our real enemy was not a mortal. The room was full of spirits and the horror of holiness. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, mighty Felix, I agree. This, uh, this speech is amazing. Dreadful in its fullest meaning. Yes. Um, and that that phrase, the horror of holiness, is, um, uh, it's, it's so good. Oh, man. It really, really conveys, um, Orwald's perspective there, right? Um, and again, I would suggest that same kind of situation, right? The same kind of helplessness, um, helplessness in the face of the gods, which we could hear in Orwell's, even in the midst of Orwell's defiance and anger in the opening paragraphs of the book. Um, that sense of hopelessness, you know, the like, maybe someday someone in the Greek lands will read this and we'll be able to judge, right? There's a kind of hopelessness to that. Like, I can't, you know, I'm going to say these things, but nobody around here can even read them. And certainly the gods will do nothing about it. Um, yeah. Um, so, remember, there have been a bunch of occasions earlier in this conversation when it has seemed that we have been led to understand like Orwell was led to understand that the priest was a mere schemer and a politic man who put into the mouth of Ungit whatever might most increase his own power. Remember, he claimed to have lain awake at night listening to Ungit speaking to him, and she tells him many things, and she informed him that someone was the accursed, that someone was taking the honor that was due to the gods. But of course, Orwell knew immediately that Redival had told him. Redival, in her trips to the temple when she had become very pious, and in her own envy of her sister, of her half sister Psyche, um, that she had informed the priest, as she threatened to do earlier on in the narrative, right? Um, 
And that's immediately what Orwell, remember when she mouths Redival to the fox, right? As soon as he starts talking about the accursed. Um, and uh, so, again, we're, we're, we, are, we are led to understand, Orwell believes that she understands that all of this is, in one sense, faked, right? Um, but remember, Orwell never herself, Orwell is sure of Ungit as well. Orwell never doubts that Ungit is real and that Ungit is powerful. Um, and here we see the sort of this other side of it. Um, she can see that the priest is sure of Ungit. This is not merely a political move by a scheming priest. This is the work of the gods. Our real enemy was not a mortal. The room was full of spirits and the horror of holiness. Um, yes, and Eric, I agree. The priest's confidence is made more intimidating by his physical weakness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes, yes. Um, curious chance asks, why can't Redival's voice be the voice of Ungit? Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, somebody was, somebody responded to that saying, oh yes. Sphinx, yes. Hold on to that question. Agreed. Hold on to that question. Absolutely. Um, yes, yes. Um, yep. Um, here, I just wanted to, and, and in conjunction with this slide, I just want to follow up again on what we were talking about last time about how tempting it is, especially from our modern perspective, to hear the philosophy of the fox and say, ah, that is reasonable, that is rational, that is not mired in this barbarian superstition. All of this dark and primitive stuff about blood sacrifice and believing that the, you know, the crops grow because blood is poured on this rock, right? Um, our own chronological snobbery... Um, speaks very strongly against such things. But as we saw last time, Orwell prompts us very clearly to hear truth in the priest's words. Um, when he starts talking about um, blood, blood rather than water, um, and the importance of sacrifice, and holy places being dark places, and why can't the accursed be both the best and the worst at the same time. Um, uh, all of those things, it's a powerful speech. And I think that it is quite clear that we are supposed to see, we're supposed to feel the weight of those things. Um, to have our own confidence shaken as Orwell's confidence is shaken. And here again, we see another. Um, uh, we we see another one of those those moments, right? Where again, if we are tempted to just kind of put the priest of Ungit, and therefore all of his utterances and this talk of Ungit into this skeptical 
category, right? Or rather, this category that is marked by our own skepticism about those beliefs. Um, we, uh, Orwell cautions us not to. Orwell does not herself do that. Um, yes, JJ, exactly. Orwell's despair at hearing the fox's attempts at arguments against the priest. Yes, it should. We should let that prompt us, right, in some ways. Um, all right. Um, on into chapter six. The conversation between the king and the fox and Orowal. Uh, remember that Orowal comes to the, uh, you know, throws herself upon the at the king's knees and, you know, begs him and, and pleads with him and is wholly desperate when Psyche is named. Um, and the king beats her about the room, right? Um, and Orwell even describes how he seems to take comfort and confidence himself in beating her, right, in that moment. And then the priest goes and he's much more kind to her. Almost, but not quite apologize. I mean, he says he had to beat her. Like, he doesn't exactly apologize for beating her. Um, but he speaks more kindly to her um, uh, than, um, uh, than he has at any other point. Right. Um, the king and... Sorry, the fox and uh, Orowal had been kind of speaking quietly to each other. And the king says, What are you mumbling about, fox? said the king. You both look at me as if I were some sort of two-headed giant they frighten children with. But what did you have me do? What would you do yourself, Fox, with all your cleverness if you were in my place? I'd fight about the day first. I'd get a little time somehow. I'd say the princess was at the wrong time of the month to be a bride. I'd say I'd been warned in a dream not to make the great offering till the new moon. I'd bribe men to swear that the priest had cheated over the lots. There's half a dozen men across the river who hold land from him and don't love their landlord. I'd make a party, anything to gain time. Give me ten days and I'd have a secret messenger to the king of Fars. I'd offer him all he wants without war. Offer him anything if he'd come in and save the princess. Offer him gloam itself and my own crown. Okay, so this is, um, this begins, of course, as counsel. We've seen several times before the fox get carried away, right? And this has happened in a couple different senses. We've seen him get carried away by logical argument. Um, even when this is one of the things that just happened that Orwell, that drove Orwell to despair, right? Um, and he begins cunningly, but by the end of the paragraph, he is merely speaking out of his own love, right? He's, he, is, he begins by asking the question, by, sorry, by answering the question, essentially, what would you have me do? Which the king had asked him. So you see the king asks him basically the two questions, right? What would, um, what, what would you have me do? And then, what would you do yourself if you were in my place? Right? He starts off answering the first question. What did you have me do? Here are some approaches you could possibly take here. No, you can't just stonewall the priest of Ungut and the assembly. Right? That's, that's obviously not going to work. They're going to burn down the palace if you try that. Right? But he starts with some cunning plans. And then, 
By the end of the paragraph, he is answering the question, what would you do yourself if you were in my place? And there he is expressing not political expediency by any stretch, but his own love. He is telling the king perfectly clearly, I would consider, if I were you, I would consider Psyche more valuable than my entire kingdom. And I would give up the latter rather than the former. Um, the king, of course, thinks this quite absurd. Uh, and um, yes, uh, and, you know, yells at the fox here. Um, the fox has that awesome cutting put down of the king, right? Where he says, I'm sorry, my, you know, I'm sorry, my lord, I forgot that your own personal safety was the thing to be considered first at all costs. Um, and, of course, Orwell comments on it and says that she, knowing him as well as she does, knows that, you know, he could not have expressed more disdain for the king uh, than if he had spat in his face, right? But uh, the king doesn't even get it. Right. It just goes completely over his head. Because, of course, he finds that to be perfectly true without irony. Of course, his own safety is to be considered first at all costs. He's the king. Right. Um, to the, 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 the king doesn't he, the king finds that such an uncontroversial statement that doesn't even consider it. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't even see the, the possibility of irony there right um yeah yeah um one of the things that i want to focus on here though one of the issues that this raises that is this little debate between the fox and the king sort of debate between the fox and the king this exchange let me say it that way is it's a question about values, but it's also a question about love. What do you love? What do you prioritize most? What does love mean to you? What does loving psyche mean? What would it look like? Um, that's going to be really important as we go through chapter six, and then especially in chapter seven uh, during Orwell and Psyche's conversation. Um, so, um, having appealed to him from his heart, Orwell tries another tack to appeal to the king. She appeals to his pride. King, said I, the blood of the gods is in us. Can such a house as ours bear the shame? How will it sound if men say when you are dead that you took shelter behind a girl to save your own life? Okay, that sounds like an interesting tack. If he won't show the kind of selfless love for Psyche that the fox professes that he would show, right? She she hears the problem here. Orwell, the fox is very intelligent, but Orwell is wiser than the fox, right? She immediately diagnoses this 
and she approaches the king on this strongest ground, right, of his own, his own pride, his own sense of his own of him of, of himself. You hear her, fox. You hear her," said the king. And then she wonders that I black her eyes. I'll not say mar her face, for that's impossible. Look, mistress, I'd be sorry to beat you twice in a day, but don't try me too far. He leaped up and began pacing the floor again. Death and scabs, he said. You'd make a man mad. Anyone would think it was your daughter they were giving to the brute. Sheltering behind a girl, you say. No one seems to remember whose girl she is. She's mine, fruit of my own body. My loss. It's I who have a right to rage and blubber if anyone has. What did I beget her for if I can't do what I think best with my own? What is it to you? There's some cursed cunning that I haven't smelled out behind all your sobbing and scolding. You're not asking me to believe that any woman, let alone such a fright as you, has much love for a pretty half-sister? It's not in nature, but I'll sift you yet. Um, okay. The king's perspective here is very revealing. Right? Um, anyone would think it was your daughter they were giving to the brute. Right? Based on how you're going on. So the king doesn't get it. Right? The king doesn't get why Orwal is so desperate to save Psyche's life. What is it to you? He thinks there must be some cunning, like, Orwal must have some scheme or other here that he can't figure out. Right? It can't be that she just loves Psyche that much. It's not in nature. He says, echoing the fox, actually. Right? Um, you're not asking me to believe that any woman has much love for a pretty half-sister, let alone such a fright as you? Like, if anyone is going to be envious, if, I mean, he, he the, surely in nature, right? Orwell should hate Psyche. I mean, Orwell's so ugly and Psyche so, so, so beautiful, right? So perfect. Um, if Redival is envious of Psyche, surely Orwell is going to be 10 times more envious of Psyche. At least this is, this is the king's rationale. Right, he figures there's got to be something else behind this. It can't be what it seems to be. Right, um, when in fact he, um, yeah, when a narcissist can't see beyond narcissism, yes, yes, in a sense he is Leaf of Starlight, um, assuming that she sees things the way that he does or he would. Right, yeah, yeah, um, he's. Um, He's too, he's too selfish. Yes. Um, yes. Of course, the irony is he already nailed it at the beginning of his speech, right? Anyone would think it was your daughter they were giving to the brute. He perceives perfectly well that the way Orwell is carrying on is the way that a mother would carry on for her own daughter. Right, if her child were being sacrificed, anyone would think that was the case, right? But he doesn't believe it, can't believe it, won't believe it, right? That that's actually how Orwell, um, how Orwell thinks. Um, 
uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so he, he observes it, but he doesn't believe it. Um, he claims that this is his loss. And notice the terms that he uses here. She's mine, fruit of my body, my loss. It's I who have a right to rage and blubber if anyone has. The right to rage and blubber, that is, the right to be upset about Psyche's death, belongs primarily to the one who owns her. Right? Um, she is his. She's his property. What did I beget her for if I can't do what I think best with my own? Right? He is not hiding, sheltering behind a girl. Right? He is disposing of this important piece of property of his in a prudent and sensible way. Right? There's no, um, no problem there in his mind. His now he's not possessive in the sense of um, wanting to keep her for himself. He doesn't actually care about her, right? Um, he talks about his loss, um, but he it's clearly not a great loss to him, right? Um, but um, uh, yeah. And Feanara, I think that that's true in part. He knows Orowal's relationship with Psyche, but has no frame of reference to understand it. Um, says, I don't think he, he's loved anything. He's loved someone as anything more than property. Um, yes. Yes. Because he is a narcissist, essentially. I mean, he... And also... But but remember, I, I want to be a little bit fair to the king. Um, he... According to the traditions of Gloom, he's not wrong to think himself the most important. He is the blood of the gods, right? Um, he is the most important person in Gloom. Like, it's not... Um, to, to call him a narcissist, and I'm not saying... I, I mean, I do agree that his behavior is like the behavior of a narcissist. Um, it certainly fits that pattern, but... Um, but I think it's, as I say, I think it's not quite doing him justice um, because the reason that the reason that we consider a narcissist's behavior inappropriate is that we disagree with the narcissist's premise that right that he or she is the most important person um, and that their own needs and desires are, are very much more important than anyone else's. Um, but that's not true. In the case, or rather, sorry, that is exactly true. In the case, like it's not true that it isn't true, right? Um, he's, um, a, according to him, he's not wrong, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> right. Mary doesn't want me to be fair to the king. I understand. I understand. But again, it's like I was saying last time. It's complicated, right? I think that it's important for us to... We have been given every indication, every indication in this narrative that we are to immerse ourselves, essentially, in this culture, in this way of looking at things. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Bricktails, I agree. He wasn't particularly broken up about the death of either his first or second wives, uh, just concerned about alliances and heirs. Yeah, of course. That's his job. Absolutely. What does the... What does the the life of a woman, in particularly a woman who gave birth to yet another girl, what does that mean to him? Right? That's not important in his world. He actually is the most important person in the kingdom. Right? Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not defending him. Um, I'm just saying his perspective makes sense within his frame of reference. Right? Um, he is very patient in trying to un- to explain how the world works here, right? Um, and he cannot see beyond it. He cannot see anything. This is why he can't understand Orwell's love for Psyche. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make it doesn't make sense in any way. It doesn't make sense based on the stereotypical understanding, like the the highly caricatured understanding that he has of women and how women think, right? As clearly evidenced in those in those last couple sentences. Um, and again, it's clearly not about Orwell herself. It's about women in general. That's why he says it's not in nature. It's not how women are, right? Um, but also, that he doesn't have... It is also true that he doesn't have any experience of this kind of love. From his perspective, the kind of selfless love that the fox was just describing, right, which the king was mocking, um, it doesn't. It would. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for Orwell to love Psyche the way that she does. It does her no good, right? It doesn't benefit her in any way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Father, said I, you are right. It is fit that one should die for the people. Give me to the brute instead of Istra. The king, without a word, came up to me, took me, softly enough, by the wrist, and led me the whole length of the room to where his great mirror hung. You might wonder that he did not keep it in his bedchamber, but the truth is he was too proud of it for that and wanted every stranger to see it. It had been made in some distant land, and no king in our parts had one to match it. Our common mirrors were false and dull. In this you could see your perfect image. As I had never been in the pillar room alone, I had never looked in it. He stood me before it, and we saw our two selves side by side. Ungud asked for the best in the land as her son's bride, he said, and you'd give her that. He held me there a full minute in silence. Perhaps he thought I would weep or turn my eyes away. At last he said, Now be off. A man can't keep pace with your moods today. Get the beefsteak for your face. The fox and I must be busy. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, get, I know the king, the king is winning no friends, and I wasn't setting out to defend him. Um, but um but yes sarah one of the ideas here is the sacrifice is to be perfect and without blemish um yes yes um 
Fan Arrow, that's a wonderful, wonderful point. Um, that there's a great irony in the fact that the mirror shows a perfect image and what it is showing is exactly how imperfect her image is. Yes, yes. Um, notice that he doesn't actually say anything. Orwell doesn't describe what she sees at all, right? Um, all we get is the king's expression. And you'd give her that. And she stares at her own face in the mirror for a full minute in silence. But you'll notice it's not just Orwell, right? This is a large mirror. And the king and Orwell are standing together before the mirror. Both of their images, their two selves side by side, appear in the mirror. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, this is just another thing that I would ask us to remember. On the one hand, on the one hand, Orwell and the king are miles apart. The love that Orwell has for Psyche is something so profoundly different from anything in the king's own experience that he cannot comprehend it. It completely puzzles him. And we see how the king looks at the world, and it's completely different. Um, but um, it's completely different. And yet the two of them, their two selves standing together side by side, when she looks in the mirror and sees herself for the first time, what she sees is herself standing next to her father, whom at times she looks like, Psyche has said, especially when she's angry. That passage, though it is a wound that aches to this day, Orwell tells us, to the day of the writing, um, we are told that there is a likeness between Orwell and the king. And I would just, again, like with so many other things, I'm not going to push it too far or draw any conclusions from this, but just to sort of put this out there. That in this, um, in this chapter, in which simultaneously the king has sounded most reasonable and even at times most kind of how, you know, more reasonable and more kind than he has appeared at any point in this book so far. That's not a high standard, I know. But we see him and we understand the king's mind more fully from this chapter, from chapter six, than we have at any other point. Um, and it's been pretty horrible 
like he's pretty horrible. And this is one of the most horrible things that he does or says. But in this moment, at the culmination of that chapter, the image that we are given, the image that in fact Orwell is studying, is not just her own face, right? This is not like a hand mirror held up to her face. This is a big full-length mirror in which she is standing there next to the king, seeing both of them together um, in, uh, in the mirror, right? They're two selves side by side. And I think it's important that we remember the connection that was established, the likeness that, that Psyche asserted can be seen sometimes between Orwell and the king. Um, yes, this is, a, this is an important moment. Uh, this, this image, this standing in front of the mirror, um, is, uh, um, is, is going to be important later on. Um, yeah. Curious Chance, I agree with you. It's horrible, but you can also see it as caring in a perverse way. He's trying to help her understand what he sees as obvious. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. I, I mean, it, nothing of his words is kindly here, right? You'd give her that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, just, just hold on, hold on to this, to this moment, to this scene. Um, okay. Chapter seven, from which we certainly shan't emerge today. Um, just wanted to touch on this. This gets singled out. I wanted to make sure it, it's, it's easy to just read past, um, uh, but I wanted to just shine a spotlight on it because Orwell as narrator does. Psyche sat upon the bed with a lamp burning beside her. Of course, I was at once in her arms and saw this only in a flash. But the picture, Psyche, a bed and a lamp, is everlasting. Psyche, a bed and a lamp. That's the everlasting picture that Orwell has. Just remember this. We'll come back to this. Um, but remember that the first time we see this picture of Psyche, a bed, and a lamp is here, in the, the room with five corners, right? Um, uh, in, the, in the Pentagon room, the prison chamber, and her, conver her last conversation with Orwell here. Um, that's it. Just keep it in mind. Psyche a bed, and a lamp, and that those three things are first brought together and associated here in this moment. Um, okay. Is this a game of Clue? Uh, Leaf of Starlight, reading any book is like a game of Clue. Um, yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it, it kind of is. Um, okay. Long before I could speak, she said, Sister, what have they done to you? Your face, your eye. He has been beating you again. Then I realized somewhat slowly that all this time she had been petting and comforting me, as if it were I who was the child and the victim. And this, even in the midst of the great anguish, made its own little eddy of pain. 
It was so unlike the sort of love that used to be between us in our happy times. She was so quick and tender that she knew at once what I was thinking, and at once she called me Maya, the old baby's name that the fox had taught her. It was one of the first words she had lear ever learned to say. Um, so, in the midst of the great anguish, Orwal feels this eddy of pain, the eddy of pain of the reversal. And yes, Jackie, we did see before, right? We saw before Orwal's pain at the change of their relationship, at her little girl growing up and not responding to her when she, Orwal, was rebuking Psyche as a child, as she would rebuke a child, as she used to rebuke her as a child, was not receiving the rebuke as a child, but as a, as a peer, as an adult. Um, and here, it's even worse. She is the one, Psyche is the one who is in the maternal position. And it's Orwal who is the child and the victim, right? Receiving love and comfort from Psyche when she meant to come and give comfort, right? The fact that these roles are reversed is itself painful to her. Instead of appreciating, right, instead of feeling like a glow with the knowledge of Psyche's love for her and care about her, she is a little bit upset about it. It is so unlike the sort of love that used to be between us in our happy times. What was that sort of love, Orwal? The sort of love that used to be between us in our happy times is when Orwal was the mother and Psyche was the child. That was the sort of love that used to be between us in our happy times. Yeah, when she was in charge? Yes. Yes. Um... Yes. And Psyche, immediately detecting the problem, shifts. She called her sister at first, which is what you would call a peer, right? And instead calls her Maya. Maya is, of course, the name of a, uh, a mother figure in Greek mythology. Maya was the mother of Hermes, um, uh, Mercury. But um, that's... Um, I, I don't believe that's the reference here. There may be references to um, you know, Maya was both a mother and a foster mother. That is, the, 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 the goddess Maya was both a, a mother and famously a mother of Hermes and also a foster mother of Arcus. She's given one of Zeus's many kids to, um, to foster after uh, the kid's mother is punished by Hera, as is so often happens. Um, but more importantly, my understanding is that Maya, it just means mommy in Greek. Like, it's what a, it's what a Greek toddler would call her mother. Um, so that, that, that Maya is basically Greek for mommy. Um, so Maya is what she called her, the old baby's name that the fox had taught her. Right. Um, so the fox taught Psyche to call Orwal Maya. Um, because, of course, no one else would understand what it meant. No one else other than the fox and Orwal 
would understand um, why she was calling her Maya. Um, and Fox called her daughter. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, so we get him, we notice how apt Psyche's shift is here, right? That puts Orowal right back into the happy place. Thinking of one of the first words she ever learned to say, thinking of Psyche as a baby and dependent upon her like a baby is of its mommy. And then it was a kind of terror to me. She smiled. She had wept very little, and mostly, I think, for love and pity of me. Now she sat tall and queenly and still. There was no sign about her of coming death, except that her hands were very cold. Orawal, she said, you make me think I have learned the fox's lessons better than you. Have you forgotten what we are to say to ourselves every morning? Today I shall meet cruel men, cowards and liars, the envious and the drunken. They will be like that, because they do not know what is good from what is bad. This is an evil which has fallen upon them, not upon me. They are to be pitied, not... She was speaking with a loving mimicry of the fox's voice. She could do this as well as Bata did it badly. Um, yes, Eric, she absolutely learned the fox's lessons better than Orwell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, and we see that from the very first sentence here. She, Orwell, is almost terrified by the smile of Psyche. There is fear in her when she sees Psyche smile. That Psyche can smile in this moment. Notice how she immediately afterwards says she had wept very little. Right? She's not weeping. She's not. She, Orwell, came to this room expecting to find Psyche beside herself with grief and terror. Hoping to bring comfort to her. Right? She wanted to bring comfort to her. She was desperate to get to her to help her and comfort her psyche. Um, and so on that level, selfishly speaking, she almost hoped that psyche would be terrified and desperate and sad because then she could comfort her. That's what she, she wanted. But she's almost afraid to find that psyche's not upset. And I think the fear here is a fear of her reaction, a fear of her lack of reaction, a fear that she doesn't, that Psyche does not need her in the way that she th thinks that she should, that she wishes she, she could, right? The immature fears the mature, yeah, in some ways. Yeah, a rare winged Balrog, you're right. Uh, the king can't understand Orwell, and Orwell can't understand Psyche. No, the difference is, well, no. Yes, you're right. Why? That's the one of the interesting things, right? Um, yes, yes. Um... 
psyche immediately starts um, again. So in st- it's all the way through this whole conversation, it's psyche who is going to be speaking the words of comfort, not Orawa. Right. The first, her first approach is the to utter the comfort of the Greeks. Right. Um, haven't hasn't the fox taught them to look at life differently than that? Right. Um, you shouldn't be upset when people do evil things. You should have pity on them, for they do not know what is good from what is bad. Um, those of you who uh, have read Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy will recognize many of her arguments here. Um, but it's not just Greek philosophy that she, Psyche, has as a resource. I could bear no more for a while, so I laid my head down in her lap and wept. If only she would so have laid her head in mine. Look up, Maya, she said presently. You'll break my heart, and I to be a bride. She could bear to say that. I could not bear to hear it. Orawal, she said very softly, we are the blood of the gods. We must not shame our lineage. Maya, it was you who taught me not to cry when I fell. Here we have the comfort of Gloam, right? This is why a princess of Gloam should not cry. We are the blood of the gods. We must not shame our lineage. Remember, Orawal took exactly that tack with the king, right? Um, Maya, it was you who taught me not to cry when I fell. Um, why? Um, because it would bring shame? Just like, oh, I don't know, the king... Um, hiding behind a girl, right? It's the same exact kind of pride. Um, this does not befit one of the blood of the gods. Um, but it's not just that. It's not just the shame, the pride and shame thing. We are the blood of the gods, and I to be a bride. She, this also is part of the comfort of Gloam. Is she going to be devoured by the brute? Yes. Is she the accursed, the worst in the land, who must, whose sin must be expiated uh, so that the land may be cleansed? Yes. Is she going to marry the god and be his bride? Yes. Is she the blessed? You know, who is uh, going to be, you know, taken to be with the, uh, who is being given to the gods. Yes, she is, right? And from a Gloomian perspective, there is no more appropriate thing for one of the blood of the gods to be the bride of the god. She is, in fact, the best candidate for this position. Um, oh, by the way, there was some. It reminds me of something I'd forgotten to say earlier on in the, in the business about the, the the priest being a schemer and a politic man. 
You'll notice the king, too, took the priest for a schemer and a politic man. He thought he was scheming against the king, and he was taking this occasion. He was taking the excuse of the, of the you know, the pestilence and the, the drought and uh, the impending war, all these horrible signs, right, as an excuse to come, come after the king and seize power from the king himself, right? This was a coup uh, the king saw coming, right? But the priest of Ungit is not a schemer and a politic man. What does he gain from killing Psyche? Nothing. Politically speaking, nothing. The king gains from it, in fact. Um, the priests, the lot has fallen upon Psyche because she is, the, in fact the perfect bride of the god. It is indeed most fitting that she should be made the great offering. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. J.J. says, I don't really like the priest more after that exchange, but I do respect him quite a bit more. That's true of so many characters in this book, isn't it? It's true of the... Uh, it's, it might not be true of the king. You might not respect him more. But we understand him perhaps a little bit more. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice again, Orowal's attitude, right? Um, she lays her head down in Psyche's lap and weeps, all the while thinking how much she would like for Psyche to lay her head in her lap so that she could be comforting her. Um, but if she can't have that, she will receive comfort from Psyche, right? Um, she could bear to say that. I could not bear to hear it. Yeah. Um, okay, more. Psyche admits that she has one fear. Only of one thing, she said, there is a cold doubt, a horrid shadow, in some corner of my soul. Supposing, supposing, how if there were no god of the mountain, and even no holy shadow brute, and those who are tied to the tree only die, day by day, from thirst and hunger and wind and sun, or are eaten piecemeal by the crows and catamountains. And it is this, oh Maya, Maya, and now she did weep, and now she was a child again. What could I do but fondle and weep with her? But this is a great shame to write, for there was now for me a kind of sweetness in our misery for the first time. This was what I had come to her in her prison to do. This, um, this, uh, thread of selfishness in her affection for Psyche. Um, even as she is taking perfect satisfaction here in Psyche's fear, she feels it a great shame to write because she also knows that Psyche being calm and confident is much better than Psyche being overcome with fear and weeping. She doesn't want that for Psyche, right? 
does she really want Psyche to suffer more so that she can comfort her more? Right? Um, she is very aware of the problems there. And yes, Jackie, you were very right. Orwell throughout this scene is very, very selfish and also very, very miserable. Yes. Yes. Um, um, yeah, Cal Elros, I agree. Orwell seems to find it very important that she puts her own sins out on the table fair and square. That way her complaint against the gods may be heard and taken seriously. Yes, she's trying to hide any of her own shame, right? And she admits her shame. Um, we'll get to the passage later in this chapter where she explicitly talks about the forensic situation, right? About the, 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 the trial of the gods that she's writing about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice, by the way, in passing, this fear of psyches is the only thing like real religious doubt that has been voiced by anyone. Really. I mean, again, the fox doesn't believe in the gods of Gloam and the traditions of Gloam. Um, but Orwell has never expressed doubt in the existence of the gods, right? The only thing that Psyche is afraid of is lest there is no god of the mountain. What if it... What if... The one thing she can't bear is the idea that none of it is actually true. Notice, by the way, that she, she's like, and even no holy shadow brute. Like, if there were to be a shadow brute who came and ate her, that's okay, <laughs> right? Like, she would accept that. Um, the only thing that she is afraid of is what if those who are tied to the tree only die? day by day. Um, yeah. She recovered before I did. She raised her head, queen-like again, and said, But I'll not believe it. The priest has been with me. I never knew him before. He is not what the fox thinks. That is, a scheming, a schemer and a politic man. He is not what the fox thinks. Do you know, sister, I have come to feel more and more that the fox hasn't the whole truth. Oh, he has much of it. It'd be dark as a dungeon within me but for his teaching. And yet, I can't say it properly. He calls the whole world a city. But what's a city built on? There's earth beneath. And outside the wall? Doesn't all the food come from there, as well as all the dangers? Things growing and rotting, strengthening and poisoning... Things shining wet in one way, I don't know which way, more like, yes, even more like the house of, yes, of Ungit, said I. Doesn't the whole land smell of her? Do you and I need to flatter gods any more? They're tearing us apart. Oh, how shall I bear it? And what worse can they do? Of course the fox is wrong. He knows nothing about her. He thought too well of the world. He thought there were no gods, or else, the fool, that they were better than men. It never entered his mind. He was too good to believe that the gods are real and viler than the vilest men. Whew. Man. Um, this is powerful stuff, right? First of all, first of all, let's notice, let's, let's do these two in order. 
right? Notice what Psyche is saying and how Psyche is here giving voice to the thing that we were led to feel back in chapter five, right? Back in chapter five, we were led to feel that neither side, neither the fox's rational philosophy, nor the priest's dark religion had the whole picture, but neither was completely wrong either. Both of them resonated in some ways. Although when they came to debate, the strength was with the priest. Right. Um, uh, so look at what Psyche says here. It's not that the fox is wrong. It's that he hasn't the whole truth. He has much of it, but not all of it. And notice, she seizes upon the metaphor that he uses. He calls the whole world a city, right? Um, So this is a metaphor that the fox has. But she says, but that's not sufficient. All cities are built on earth. There's earth beneath the city. What about that? Right? So she's implicitly comparing the priest of Ungit's perspective, right? Comparing the the world of, you know, the, the traditions of Gloam to the earth beneath the city in which the people live. And outside the wall? Outside the walls of the city. Dangers come from outside the walls of the city. But the food, the farms are out there too. Food comes in, as well as dangers. Things growing and rotting, strengthening and poisoning. She doesn't, she knows that there are many things that, um, uh, she knows that there are many, there are both good things and bad things that come from outside the city. She doesn't believe that all spiritual things are healthy, right? There may be some spiritual things that are more like rotting and poisoning than growing and strengthening. Um, so she says, in one way, it is more like, even more like the house of Ungit. Now think about the connection that Psyche is making here. Psyche is suggesting that the world is less like a city and more like the house of Ungit. Um, Orowal, um, notice how Orowal pounces on this. Yes, of Ungit. Doesn't the whole land smell of her? And she has completely missed. Um, she has completely missed Psyche's point entirely, right? All she, all Orowal can see is the rotting and the poisoning. She believes in the gods, but she believes that the gods are the gods are poisoning everything. Um, do you and I need to flatter gods anymore? This is flattery. This. Idea of them providing food, please, right? We don't need to flatter them anymore. We don't need to fear them. Why? Because they've already done their worst. They're tearing us apart. What worse can they do? The reason you don't say bad things about the gods out loud is that they might smite you for it, as Orwell talked about in the first paragraphs, right? Um. Now, they've already done their worst. 
They're taking Psyche from her. They're tearing us apart. What worse can they do? Of course the fox is wrong. He thought too well of the world. The fox doesn't believe in the stories of the gods, either the stories of Ungut and the and her son, uh, the god of the mountain, or even his own Greek stories, right? Lies of poets, lies of poets. Why? Because it is that is not how the divine nature is, right? He keeps saying the divine nature is not like that. The divine nature is not envious. Um, those are all lies of poets. His problem, Orwell says, is that he's too good. He believes that the gods are better than men. Orwell believes that the gods are real and viler than the vilest men, and she's not afraid to say it out loud. Her own anger, her own grief, completely blinds her to what Psyche is seeing, to what Psyche's faith is built on. The fox has part of the truth, but there's other truth as well. Um, yeah. Um, Eric, that's a really good point. Eric says, the fox never promised suffering wouldn't happen. He just believes with the philosophers that if you don't cause it for others, you have preserved the best in yourself. The fact that Orwell's implicit... Right, and of course, that's very Boethius, right? Um, someone who commits evil, someone who does evil actions to someone else, has harmed themselves primarily. The victims of evil are not made evil by being the victim. Suffering will happen, right? But, um, uh, but the only one who's really suffered harm to themselves, to their inner selves, is the one who does the evil, right? So yeah, very much along with the um, uh, the, the 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 fox's philosophy there. Um, but anyway, Eric goes on to add the fact that Orwell's implicit assumption is that suffering is to be avoided at all costs makes her like her father. Yes, she um, she grudges. Right? She's angry at the gods for the suffering. Notice both following and building on the fox's philosophy. Psyche sees both the growing and the rotting, the strengthening and the poisoning. All of these come from the ground, right? Um, from the earth, from the land around the city. Um, Orwell Again, she sees only the rotting and the poisoning. Um, yeah, Leaf of Starlight, that is interesting. Um, she differs, Orwell differs from both Psyche and the Fox, who have a way to integrate suffering into their systems of thinking about the world. Yes, yes. And Maureen, you're right. This is the moment when Orwell has become openly hostile to the gods. Um, yes, she was always... uneasy about them, right? Um, she didn't think well of them. She believed in them. She believes in Ungut, but does not think well of her, right? This is the first time now she's begun to be openly hostile, as you say. Or else, said Psyche, they are real gods, but don't really do these things. Or even, mightn't it be, 
they do these things, and the things are not what they seem to be? How if I am indeed to wed a god? So let's just stop there. Look at Psyche's thing. So she's offering an alternative to Orwal. Orwal has said the fox does not believe in the stories about the gods because he believes the gods to be better than men. And therefore he believes that the stories are lies that when they make out the gods to be shameful and spiteful and acting horribly. Um, again, both the Greek and the Glomish stories about them, right? Um, so that's one option. The fox's option. The other option is Orwell's option, right? That the gods are real and viler than the vilest men. Um, here's Thy Psyche's third option. Or else they are real gods, but don't really do these things. Or even... Mightn't it be? They do these things, and the things are not what they seem to be. So I think her first statement is basically, they are real gods, but we don't understand the things that they do, right? They don't really do these things. That is, the stories aren't exactly true. But it's not, I don't think she's saying it's just lies of poets. But the stories aren't really true, right? Um... But then she offers the fascinating alternative. They do these things, and the things are not what they seem to be. It's not that the gods aren't what they seem to be. The things that they do aren't what they seem to be. How if I am indeed to wed a god? What if, yes, it looks like I am being killed to appease the wrath of the god. Ungit is angry at the king. And, or angry at her at Psyche, and Psyche's death will slake the anger of Unkit, right? Um, well, that's one way to look, about, look at it, and they can tell that story, as the priest was telling stories about the accursids of the previous two generations, right? But she says, what if the things are not what they seem to be? How if I am indeed to wed a god? What if what if the marrying and the devouring are one? What if it is a mystery that doesn't make sense from a logical perspective? What if both are kind of true in a sense? Um, Orwell's response. She made me in a way angry. I would have died for her. This at least I know is true. And yet the night before her death I could feel anger. She spoke so steadily and thoughtfully, as if we had been disputing with the fox up behind the pear trees, with hours and days still before us. The parting between her and me seemed to cost her so little. She continues to be angry that Psyche isn't more upset. The parting between her and me seemed to cost her so little. Where, wherein lies the difference between Orwal and Psyche during this conversation? What are they looking at? What are they focused on? Psyche is thinking about the gods. Orwal is thinking about herself. 
Yeah. Orwell's focused on herself. But what about me? I came here, Orwell seems to be saying, right? I came here because I was so upset at losing you. I'm focused on you. Shouldn't you be focused on me? If you aren't as sad to be ripped away from me as I am to have you ripped away from me, doesn't that mean that you don't love me as much as I love you? And that makes her angry, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the parting between her and me seemed to cost her so little. I want to emphasize that Orwell's suffering is very real. I'm not trying to make Orwell out to be just a horrible person, right? Um, the selfishness of grief is very real. Like, people who are grieving, people who are... There are lots of things you go through when you are upset like this. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. Mary says, death is about the living left behind and not the dying. Especially stories about it written by those who are left behind decades later, right? Um, this is Orwell's story. Um, yeah, this is Orwell's story. Um, yes, Van Arrow, exactly. The apparent lack of pain at parting makes Orwell feel invalidated about the significance of their, of their relationship. And you see the irony, right? The irony, why did she come? She came here hoping to comfort. Um, hoping to comfort Psyche, right? Thinking that Psyche would be desperately upset and that she, Orwell, could offer her strength, could offer her comfort, could offer her some kind of consolation to make her feel better. And Psyche already has it all, right? Um, she's already done all... She's already... She's pre-consoled, right? She doesn't need that consolation because she's already got it. The very kind of... Orwell might have said similar things, perhaps. We don't even know what she would have said had she come in and found Psyche hysterical. Right. Um, yes. Yes. Um, I see, said Psyche in a low voice. You think it devours the offering. This is not coming right after that. It's after a comment that Orwell had made. You think it devours the offering. I mostly think so myself. Remember, this is Orwell responding to the idea of her being the bride, her wedding the god. And she mentioned something about the horrible shadow brute. You think it devours the offering. I mostly think so myself. Anyway, it means death. Orwell, you didn't think I was such a child as not to know that. How can I be the ransom for all gloom unless I die? And if I am to go to the god, of course it must be through death. That way, even what is strangest in holy sayings might be true. To be eaten and to be married to the god might not be so different. We don't understand. There must be so much that neither the priest nor the fox knows. There must be so much that neither the priest nor the fox knows. She's gone beyond that image of the city, right? 
The image of the city and the earth beneath it and the farms outside was a way of saying both of them might be right. This fox doesn't have the whole truth. There's other truth there. There's the truth of the house of Ungit as well, right? Not only the, the city of the world, but the house of Ungit as well. But now she said, there's so, there's, there must be so much that neither of them knows. There's something beyond both of them. To be eaten and to be married to the god might not be so different. Remember the story of uh, Anchises and Aphrodite? When the fox first learned about Ungit and that Ungit was Aphrodite in his assessment, he immediately told this story of Aphrodite and Anchises, which ended, you will remember, in Anchises' reaction when he wakes up and realizes that he has lain with the goddess and sees her with the glory and expects to be destroyed, seeks even to be destroyed. Um... Yeah, to be eaten and to be married to the god might not be so different. Anyway, it means death. She accepts death. How can I be the ransom for all gloam unless I die? Remember what Orwa was saying. Orwa was trying to upset her, was trying to rock her equilibrium. Don't you realize you're going to die, basically, she was saying. Of course I realize that. How can I be the ransom for all Gloam unless I die? Again, both the wisdom of Gloam and the wisdom of the fox arm her against that, against fear of death. If I am to go to the god, of course it must be through death. That way, even what is strangest in the holy sayings might be true. To be eaten and to be married to the god might not be so different. Both of them require death. Both of them are a form of death. One way or the other, you will be consumed by the divine. Oh, cruel, cruel, I wailed. Is it nothing to you that you leave me here alone? Psyche, did you ever love me at all? Love you? Why, Maya, what have I ever had to love save you and our grandfather the fox? But I did not want her to bring even the fox in now. But, sister, you will follow me soon. You don't think any mortal life seems a long thing to me tonight? And how would it be better if I had lived? I suppose I should have been given to some king in the end, perhaps such another as our father. And there you can see again how little difference there is between dying and being married. To leave your home, to lose you, Maya, and the fox, to lose one's maidenhead, to bear a child, they are all deaths. Indeed, indeed, Orawal, I am not sure that this which I go to is not the best. Yeah, Leaf of Starlight, I agree. Uh, it says, this part about they are all deaths really hit me, how the stages of life are all a kind of death. Yes. Yes. They are all deaths. What did you expect, Orwal? What did you expect? If she hadn't been fed to the god, something else would have happened. She'd been fed to a, a foreign king instead. That that Psyche and Orowal 
were going to be parted was inevitable. That they're eventually going to die physically, literally, one way or another, sooner or later. And if later, what's a few decades, right? And how would it be better if I'd lived? She would lose her, right? They would be ripped apart from each other if she were sent off in marriage to a foreign king. Just like Psyche's mother, when she arrived at the court alone, right? Well, I, she wasn't presumably completely alone, but that sense of the loneliness of the queen, right? That small, scared girl wrapped in all of the fancy clothing, which was unwrapped and unwrapped until she looked smaller and smaller, until she was this tiny little shivering white thing that got placed into the terrifying king's bed. That would have been psychic. So we've seen that. That's That would have been her destiny. Orwell is not thinking of any of this, right? Um... Yes, exactly, Maureen. Psyche's own mother died this way. Act her real mother, right? Her actual Maya. Um, yeah. Um, again, we can see how Psyche's responses, how Psyche's perspectives are informed by um, both the wisdom of Gloam and the wisdom of the fox. Right, there's a lot of the fox's philosophy in this speech, isn't there? Think about when the fox was going to commit suicide instead of being sent to the mines, right? Um, and his attitude towards death that he described to Orwell, right? Um, this, uh, it's it's there's some real similarity, except the difference is she's living it out without her hands shaking in fear, right? Um, his body was betraying him, right? The fear of death that he felt in his body was betraying him. It's not betraying her. Um, yeah. Um, interestingly for Starlight, I hadn't thought of that, is has Orwell been able to escape thinking of this because of her ugliness? Yeah, Fanaro calls it almost a kind of freedom. Um, she's not going to be sent to a foreign king. to be. She's never going to have the experience that Psyche's mother had. In part, in large part, because of her ugliness. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's a really interesting insight. I hadn't, <clears throat> I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's true. Um, there's a way in which she is sheltered by this. Um, it's perfectly clear, of course, Orawal is well beyond marriageable age. Right? Redival, we know when Redival hit puberty and she's Orawal's younger sister. Right? Um, and that was some time before. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, that's a this a reality. This um, these other deaths that women would be sent to, 
right? Would are women are doomed to all of them? Orwell avoids through her ugliness to leave her home, to lose, you know, her family, to lose her maidenhead, to bear a child. They are all deaths and all deaths from which Orwell is spared by her ugliness. I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, Mm. All right. I'm tempted to push through, but I think we still have a bunch of slides left. Um, we'll come back and finish this up. Um, yeah, we'll come back and finish this up for next time. Um, this by which I mean chapter seven. Um, we'll definitely do chapter eight. Um, we'll do chapter what read through chapter nine just in case. Chapter nine is is the expedition and uh, we will see. I know chapter nine ends on a bit of a cliffhanger, um, but. Um, yeah, chapter nine ends on a bit of a cliffhanger, but that's OK. We'll uh, uh, we'll we'll still there's still no chance we can get past that. So I don't think there's a realistic chance we can get past that. So read through chapter nine. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about that next time, which should be next week, I believe. So uh, thanks, everybody. And I look forward to more discussion next week. Really appreciate your uh, your observation tonight. This was great. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.